Chapter 3. How to Interpret the Bible to Find Its True Meaning For we are not as many, which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God. In the sight of God we speak in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17 Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 2 Corinthians 4, 1-4 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 The devil saith unto him, It is written. Matthew 4, 5-6 My next subject is how to interpret the Bible to find its true meaning. I have four texts. The first is that we are not as many, which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God. In the sight of God speak we in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17 The word translated corrupt in this verse is derived from a noun meaning a tavern keeper, a wine merchant, a petty retailer, a huckster, or a peddler. The thought is that as tavern keepers and wine merchants and peddlers frequently adulterate their wines, fruits, or other wares, so many alleged teachers of the word of God adulterate the word of God. That is certainly true of not a few preachers, Bible teachers, and theological professors in America and elsewhere in these days. Paul says he was not in that contemptible, disreputable business, and we ought to be careful that we are not either, when we teach or when we study God's word. Our second text is 2 Corinthians 4, 1-4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, are perishing, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The word translated handling deceitfully in these verses means to corrupt, as metals are debased, or wine adulterated, and the thought is that of debasing the pure gold of God's word, or adulterating the pure wine of God's word, by mingling false ideas with it. That too is a common practice today. Paul says that he has renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, and that he is not walking in theological, craftiness, cunning, or subtlety. It is evident that he did not have the advantage of an education in some of our American institutions, as he was not debasing the pure gold of the Word of God, or adulterating the pure wine of the Word of God by mixing in his own preconceived notions. Here, too, we also greatly need to be on our guard when we study or teach the Word of God. Our third text is, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 The authorized version, as you know, reads, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, 
rightly dividing the word of truth. The Greek word for rightly dividing that Paul actually used means cutting straight, and that would be a better way to translate it here than the way it is rendered in either the authorized version or the revised version. Then the verse would read, Give diligence to present thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, cutting straight the word of truth. I tell you there is a lot of crooked cutting today when men come to the study and interpretation of the word of God, especially when they find something they do not wish to believe. Some years ago, a friend of mine passed by a carpenter and jointer shop in a southern city. Over the door was this sign, all sorts of twisting and turning done here. That would be a fine sign to put over the door of some of our theological seminaries, many of our pulpits and Bible classes, and many a room where Christians are studying the Word of God alone. Each of us needs to be on our guard that this may not be an appropriate sign over the door of the room where we study our Bible alone. Remember as you study the Bible that it is God's Word, and be sure to cut it straight. My fourth text is Matthew 4, 5-6. through six. The devil saith unto him, It is written. You see from this passage that the devil can quote scripture and interpret or misinterpret scripture and argue from what is written in the book of God. If you think he has quit the business, read Pastor Russell's Millennial Dawn or Mrs. Eddy's Science and Health or some of the productions of the American Institute of Sacred Literature or the University of Chicago or some of the Sunday school help sent out by some of our denominational boards. But I would not advise you to spend much time on this devil-inspired trash. It is not enough to study the Bible, or even to spend several hours in Bible study daily. We must seek diligently to cut it straight. We must find out how to interpret the Bible to find its true meaning, to discover just what God meant to teach by each verse we study, and then interpret it that way in every instance. Of many passages of Scripture, there are several possible meanings. One man says it means one thing, and another man says it means another thing. Now God intends only one of these meanings. We should seek to find out not what men say it means, even good men, but what God intended it to teach. Is there any way in which ordinary men like you and me can tell with certainty which interpretation of several possible interpretations of a passage is the right interpretation? the exact meaning God intended to convey? There is. There are certain laws of interpretation that will enable you to know in almost every instance just what is the true interpretation of every verse in the Bible. What is the true sense of the passage? Just what God wishes to teach. I shall endeavor to state these laws so you can all understand them, and then apply them for yourselves. Get right with God by the surrender of your will to God. The first great law of correct Bible interpretation, which will be recognized as a law of God by any fair-minded person who gives it a few minutes' consideration, is to get absolutely right with God, by the absolute surrender of your will to Him. The only man who is at all competent to interpret the will of God is the man who is in harmony with God, and the only man who is in harmony with God is the man whose will is fully surrendered to God. If you are not right with God, you certainly are not competent to say what God means by any passage in His Word. Our Lord Jesus Himself says, If any man will do His will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself. John 7.17 Nothing else so clears up our minds to understand the Word of God as the surrender of our will to God. The will is the eye of the soul. 
Our Lord also says that. He says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Matthew 6, 22-23 And it is clear from the next verse that by a single eye, he means a will fully surrendered to God. His words are, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24 If your will is surrendered to God and to him alone, your eye is single and your whole body is full of light. But if your will is not fully surrendered to God and him alone, your eye is evil and your whole person is full of darkness. Nothing gives us as clear an eye to discern as we read God's word. Just what God means, as an entirely surrendered will. A surrendered will does more to qualify anyone to be a competent and dependable interpreter of the word of God than the fullest possible university course in Greek and Hebrew and the related languages. As I said before, I have known great Greek scholars and great Hebrew scholars and men deeply versed in the related languages who were as blind as a bat to the real meaning of the scriptures, because they lack that clearness of spiritual vision that comes only from a surrendered will. And on the other hand, I have known very ordinary and quite uneducated men and women with no pretensions whatever to scholarship, who had a wonderful understanding of the meaning of God's word, because their wills were surrendered to God. We get this same principle of Bible interpretation from Psalm 25.14. The secret, the friendship, of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. The same thought is found in Proverbs 3.32. Scripture, for the froward is abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. A closely similar thought is found in our Lord's last words to his disciples. On the night before his crucifixion, Scripture, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. John 15.15 15. The first great principle of biblical interpretation, then, is that the one who would interpret the Bible must himself be in harmony with the author of the book by the surrender of his will to God. Every theological professor whose will is not fully surrendered to God should be turned out of the chair he occupies in any seminary or university. When Mr. Alexander and I were holding meetings in a university city in England, Mr. Alexander was invited out to dinner by one of the most prominent officers in one of the theological schools connected to the university. This man, who was a fine man in many ways, took exception to some of our teachings. He accompanied Mr. Alexander after dinner out to his carriage. And as they stood by the carriage and had a few earnest parting words, Mr. Alexander put the question straight to him. Have you ever made a full surrender of your will to God? This prominent theological university teacher very frankly and gently said to Mr. Alexander, No, Mr. Alexander, I have not. That accounted for his misunderstanding of the word of God. And the same thing accounts for the misunderstanding of the word of God on the part of a great many students of the word today. See to it that you are not blinded in a similar way to the real meaning of God's word. Unless you fulfill this first great law of correct Bible interpretation, it will not help you to fulfill the other laws. You will get nowhere in your study of the Word. Be determined to discover what God intended to teach.
The second principle of correct Bible interpretation is to be determined to discover what God intended to teach, and not what you wish Him to teach. One great reason why many do not find the true meaning of God's words is that they do not really wish to find the true meaning of God's words, but they wish to find some way in which they can force God's words into harmony with their own notions. Many men and women see only what they wish to see in the Bible. This is the cause of the blinding of the eyes of many. Someone asked me the other day, Why can't the Jews see that their own Old Testament scriptures predicted a suffering Messiah, who would make atonement for sin by his death, and that Jesus is that Messiah? It is so plain. The answer is simple, because they are spiritually blinded. Romans 11.25 And then I asked that person a question. Why don't Christians today see that there are other predictions in the Old Testament? Just as plain and far more of them that the Messiah is coming as an all-conquering king, to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and that Jesus, the true Messiah, is coming again. The answer to that is just as simple. Cares of the world and temptations are choking out what really matters. Mark 4, 18-20 Many years ago I was certain that all men would ultimately be saved and the devil too. I was so determined to establish that doctrine that I interpreted everything I found in the Bible on the subject of future punishment in the light, or rather in the darkness, of that determination of mine in order to make the Bible square with my own view, which I reasoned philosophically and was ready to defend against all newcomers. But when I reached the point where I desired not only to make the Bible square with my philosophical arguments for universal salvation, but also to find out just what God really taught, I easily found what God did teach. My universal salvation arguments evaporated into thin air. We must all be on guard at this point. In absolute honesty, we must have only one wish, to discover what God means by the verse we are studying, and only that, no matter how much it may conflict with our previous ideas. Get the most accurate text. The third principle of correct Bible interpretation is to get the most accurate text to interpret. The original manuscripts of the Bible are the very Word of God. Now, we do not have the original manuscripts of the Bible. We have many manuscripts, but not one of them is the original. There are many variations in the manuscripts which we possess. But by a comparison of the many manuscripts of the various parts of the Bible, and we have far more manuscripts of the books of the Bible than of any other ancient book, we can come close to the original texts, as they came from the hands of Paul, John, Matthew, and the rest of the writers of the books of the Old and New Testaments. Indeed, we now have what is to all practical intents and purposes, the original text as it came from the hand of the original writers, of the various books of the Bible. It is wonderful when we remember how old these books are, how often they were copied, how many manuscripts we have, and the advances in scholarship especially in textual criticism, that have been made in the time between when the authorized version was published in 1611 and when the revised version was published only a few years ago in 1881. Yet there are a few differences of real importance between the authorized version and the revised version. There is not one single doctrine of any vital importance affected in the least by the variations between the two versions, not one. That is amazing and it shows the wonderful providential care with which God guarded his own written word. But there are slight differences, and of course, we wish to know the exact mind of God, and since that is found in the original manuscripts, we therefore desire and should seek the purest text, the most exact text, 
the text that is closest to the original manuscripts. There can be no honest question that the revised version presents a text more exactly the same as that of the original manuscripts than the authorized version does. So, though for many reasons the authorized version is the better one for the general reading of the average Christian, nevertheless, everyone who wishes to find the exact words of God should have and should study the revised version. There is one glaring misrendering in the revised version, however. It is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. The revised version reads, Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, putting the is after the inspired of God, instead of before it as in the authorized version. There is absolutely no reason for this change. It is indefensible. It should read, Every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But the fault in that case is not in the Greek text upon which the revised version is built, but upon the translation of the text. There is no question about the Greek text even in this case. Many uncertainties about the meaning of various passages in the Bible would be easily settled if we would just look at the more correct text as given in the revised version. Take 1 Thessalonians 5.22 as an illustration. The authorized version renders this, abstain from all appearance of evil. The revised version renders it, abstain from every form of evil. While the Greek text that the King James translators and the revisers used is the same, I think the English text in the revised version gives the truer sense of the Greek text better than the authorized version does. We are not so much to abstain from the appearance of evil, but from what is actually evil and from what is actually evil in every form in which it appears, every form of evil. Find the most exact and literal meaning of the text. The fourth principle of correct Bible interpretation is to find the most exact and literal meaning of the text. It is one of the most firmly established principles of law in England and in America that a law stands as it is written. And in other words, a law means exactly what it says and is to be interpreted and enforced just as it reads. This is a good principle for interpreting the Bible as for interpreting law. If Shaler Matthews and the rest of the higher critics and new theology men were practicing law and tried to interpret laws in any court of justice as they interpret the Bible, they would be laughed out of court. It is no wonder that the one who has done more to prick the iridescent soap bubbles of the higher critics and new theology men than almost anyone else was a brilliant lawyer, knighted by King Edward for his eminent legal talents. My late intimate and beloved friend Sir Robert Anderson, the primary meaning of any passage of scripture, just as the meaning of any law in our statute books, is the literal meaning, unless it is perfectly plain from the context, from other scripture, or from the manifestly figurative character of the passage, that something else than the literal sense is intended. Those who do not wish in any particular case to accept what God actually says, including some who are scholars who ought to know better, often flee from the plain meaning of a text. They say, Oh, but you know that the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life, by which they mean the literal sense of a passage, the interpretation that takes God as meaning just what he says, killeth. But a spiritual interpretation, an interpretation that makes God mean something he does not say, giveth life. If anyone will look up Paul's words, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life, 2 Corinthians 3.6. In their context, he will see that Paul never dreamed of such an interpretation or application of his words as these men give to them. 
It is as clear as day from the context that what Paul meant was that the mere written letter, written with ink or engraved in tablets of stone, killed, but the word of God, written with the spirit of the living God on our hearts, in tables that are hearts of flesh, gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.3 Revised Version These men who thus misuse 2 Corinthians 3.6 call those who hold fast to the actual literal meaning of the words, deadly literalists. But if that kind of literalism is deadly, then Paul himself, the very one who wrote these words, was one of the most deadly literalists the world has ever known. For Paul constantly insisted upon the literal meaning of words, and would build an argument upon the tense, number, or case of a word used. A very distinguished Hebrew scholar, a professor in a leading American theological seminary, once tried to work this interpretation of 2 Corinthians 3.6 on me. In a friendly discussion, I had driven him into a corner by quoting a plain statement from God's word. He could not escape, but tried to sidestep by saying, But you know that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. I replied, Now, professor, do you really think that is what Paul means by those words? And he frankly said, No, I know it is not. Another very easy and common way of reading out of the Bible, what God has put into it, is for men to say, Oh, that is figurative. When they are driven into a corner by some plain passage that they do not wish to believe. By this they mean it does not mean what it says, but you can take it to mean whatever you like. That is a common tactic today with the post-millennialists. Reading out of the Bible what God so plainly says in it about the personal, visible, bodily, imminent coming again of our Lord Jesus. It is outrageous trickery, unworthy of anyone who has sense enough to subordinate his own crude infallible opinions to the plain teaching and infinite wisdom of God's word. When statements are plainly figurative, of course, interpret them as figures. But even then remember that figures stand for facts. And God's figures never overstate the facts, and never misinterpret the facts. An honest man's figures never mean just the opposite of what they seem to teach. The most plain and obvious meaning of any passage in the Bible is always to be preferred to a subtle and ingenious one. For the Bible was written for plain, honest-minded, humble-minded, common folk, and not for a few refined mystics. Didn't Jesus say, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Matthew 11, 25-26 Well, don't forget it. A man who was a great scholar once said at a Bible conference, I think the best method of Bible study is the baby method, by which he meant just what Jesus Christ means here, that God reveals his truth to the humble, teachable mind, to the one who comes to him as a babe. Remember how Jesus said again, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. Note the exact force of each word used. The fifth principle of correct Bible interpretation is to note the exact force of each word used. Remember that the Bible is God's word, and that God always says exactly what he means, no more, no less. Remember that the Bible is verbally inspired. The Holy Spirit, the unerring Spirit of God, led the Bible writers in the choice of every word they wrote. He led them to write the word that exactly expressed what was in the mind of God, or as Paul puts it, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 
2.13. Note every word and the exact force of every word. Take, for example, Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now this is constantly interpreted as meaning that we are saved by being faithful unto death. But it does not say so. It says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. It tells us not the way to be saved, but the way to obtain the crown. Take Luke 6.30. Give to every man that asketh of thee. This is constantly interpreted, as if it meant, Give to every man that asketh thee, just what he asks. But it does not say that. It says, Give to every man that asketh, but does not specify what to give to him. And it means exactly and literally what it says. It is far better to give some men advice than it is to give them money. The whole context shows that we are to take God as our example in our giving and in all else that we do. And while God gives to everyone who asks, he certainly does not always give, even to his own children, the very thing we have asked. Take Ephesians 4.30 Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This is constantly interpreted as meaning that we are not to grieve away the Holy Spirit. But it does not say that. So far from teaching us that we can grieve away the Holy Spirit, it tells us in the last part of the verse that we cannot, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. But while we cannot grieve him away, if we are children of God, we can grieve him, and alas, we do. Interpret the words used according to Bible usage. The sixth great principle of correct Bible interpretation is to interpret the words used in any verse according to the Bible usage of those words. When some people find any new word in the Bible, they run off for Webster's Dictionary or the Standard Dictionary to find out just what the word means. No, go to the Bible, take your concordance, and look up every passage in which the word in question is used, and you will have God's definition of its meaning. For example, take the word death. In Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does death mean here? Many run off to a dictionary and decide it means cessation of existence. But take your Bible and concordance and go through the Bible, and you will find it means nothing of the kind in the Bible. God himself defines the death, which is the ultimate result of sin in Revelation 21.8. Scripture. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A man came into my office in Minneapolis. This text was hanging among others upon the wall, and he read, The wages of sin is death. And then he turned to me and said, Do you believe that? I knew the man was an annihilationist. And I said, Yes, sir, I believe it. But do you know what death means? I took my Bible and showed him that his understanding of the word death was not the Bible meaning, and I think I convinced him of his error. Take the word sanctify, a word of frequent occurrence in the Bible. Many define the word for themselves, and take it to mean to make absolutely holy in character. They build a whole system of theology, and an utterly false system of theology, on their wrong definition. If they would take their Bible in concordances, and look up every one of the many passages in the Bible where this word is used, they would find that the primary meaning of to sanctify is to set apart for God. They would find that the Bible teaching on this exceedingly precious and important subject of sanctification 
is entirely different from what they suppose. Likewise with the word justify and a multitude of other words. When you are in doubt as to the exact meaning of any word in the Bible, take your concordance and look up every verse in the Bible where the word is used, and you will see what the word means. Interpret the words with regard to the particular usage of that author. The seventh principle of correct Bible interpretation is closely connected with the sixth. It is to interpret the words of each author in the Bible with regard to the particular usage of that author. While God is the real author of every book in the Bible, He used the individual personality of each man He employed to write the various books which make up His own word. So we should find how the particular writer that we are studying uses any word. For example, James does not use the words faith and believe in the exact sense that Paul uses them, or in the exact sense in which John uses them. When James talks about believing, he means a mere intellectual conviction of the truth. So he says, the devils also believe and tremble. James 2.19 Paul speaks of believing as a conviction that governs a man's whole inner life, his intellect, his emotions, and his will. He says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9-10 And he said to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 Also, when John speaks of believing, he means a conviction to which a man utterly, unreservedly, and gladly surrenders himself. So he says in John 20, 31, These are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And he says in 1 John 5, 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And four verses later he says, Who is he that overcometh the world? but he that believeth, that Jesus is the Son of God. Interpret individual verses with regard to the context. The eighth principle of correct Bible interpretation is to interpret individual verses with regard to the context. Many a verse might mean two or three or more different things if it stood alone without any setting. But in its context in the Bible, taking note of what goes before it and what comes after it, it cannot mean but one of these three or four different things. So we must notice carefully what comes before the verse we are studying, and what comes after it, if we are to discover the exact meaning of the verse before us. For example, take Acts 2.39. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now what is the promise to which reference is made in this passage? Some say it is the promise of salvation. Others say it is the promise to the individual of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Which one is right? If the verse stood alone, either one might be right. But when we look at it in its context, only one meaning is seen to be the true sense. Read the verse that goes immediately before it. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 then he goes on immediately to say, For the promise is unto you. What promise? The promise, of course, of which he has just spoken. The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Take John 14.18. I will not leave you comfortless. 
I will come to you. To what coming does this refer? To the second coming of Christ? Or to his coming in the Holy Spirit to dwell in their hearts? It might mean either, if it stood alone. But if you read the two verses that immediately precede it, and the five verses immediately following it, you will see it refers to his coming in the Holy Spirit, to dwell in their hearts. In the verses that immediately precede it, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. John 14, 16-17 This becomes clearer in the verses that follow, where he speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit in which he will manifest himself to them, and will come and make his abode with them. Interpret individual passages in the light of parallel or related passages. The ninth principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret individual passages in the light of parallel or related passages. The meaning of many passages in the Gospels, whose meaning seems doubtful, would be settled at once if one would only read the parallel passages in another Gospel. Take, for example, Luke 14, 26-27. If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Now that looks hard. It has puzzled more people than almost any other passage in the Bible. But turn to the parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37-38, and it is cleared up. Scripture He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross, and followeth after me, is not worthy of me. So it is evident that our Lord Jesus used the word hate in Luke 14, 26-27, in a sense in which it is used a number of times in the Bible, as a comparatively less love. Our love for God should be so immeasurably superior to our love for even the dearest of our earthly relatives, that in comparison with our love for God, our attitude toward them would be like aversion or turning away from them. Take John 14, 3. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now our Lord might be referring to his coming again to receive us at death, or he might be referring to his second coming. To which does he refer? Another passage clearly and unmistakably answers the question. 1 Thessalonians 4.16-17 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There are four points in each statement. They cover one another exactly, and make it clear that Paul's words are an inspired commentary on our Lord's words. Jesus says, I will come again. Paul says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Jesus says, I will receive you unto myself. Paul says, We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus says, That where I am, there ye may be also. Paul says, So shall we ever be with the Lord. 
Jesus says in introducing this promise, Let not your heart be troubled. Paul says in closing, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Take Matthew 13.33 The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took, and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Now some say this means that the kingdom of God, the truth of God, and the gospel of God are going to gradually grow and spread until they pervade the whole world. Others say that the leaven represents the corrupt doctrine that the woman, an apostate church, mixes in the children's bread, and which multiplies like the yeast germs until the whole life and doctrine of the church is leavened. Which is right. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, and you get God's answer to this important question. Scripture. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is an inspired commentary on our Lord's words, and makes it as clear as day that the leaven refers to corruption, error, and sin. The Bible itself is the very best commentary on the Bible. There is not a doubtful or difficult passage in the Bible anywhere that some other passage does not clear up and explain if we seek long enough for it. The best book to help you in finding these other passages that clear up uncertainties and solve difficulties is the treasury of Scripture knowledge. Of several possible explanations of a passage, choose the one in harmony with the general teaching or trend of the Bible. If anyone received a letter from me that had a statement in it that was capable of two interpretations, one of which was in harmony with the general tenor of my letter and my other writings, and one of which was utterly in conflict with the general trend of my letter and my other writings, he would not hesitate for one moment to give the interpretation that was in harmony with the general teaching and trend of my letter and of my other writings. So we ought to do likewise in interpreting the Bible. This does not mean that we are to distort and twist a passage out of its obvious meaning, so there may be no apparent contradiction between it and some other clear passage in the Bible. One of the most vicious principles of Bible interpretation is that we must reconcile every passage with the teaching of every other passage. As the Bible is the revelation of an infinite mind that presents all sides of the truth, it is inevitable that there would be in it two lines of truth which may be perfectly easy to reconcile in a mind of infinite wisdom but which we in our limitations of thought and one-sidedness of thought cannot reconcile at all. For example, we are not to try to explain away the clear teaching of the Word of God as to the sovereignty of God on the one hand, or the clear teaching of the Word of God as to the freedom of the human will on the other hand. But if there are several easily possible interpretations of a passage, and one fits more harmoniously with the general teaching and trend of the Bible than the other, that is the one to be accepted. Interpret obscure passages in the light of passages that are perfectly plain. The tenth principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret obscure passages in the light of passages that are perfectly plain. Many do just the opposite. There will be a number of passages whose meanings are as plain as day. There will be another passage which is more or less obscure, and people will ignore all these perfectly plain passages, and try to explain them away in the uncertain light of the obscure passage. The other procedure, comparing with a plain text, would be the rational one. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 9.27. I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway.
or rather be disapproved. Now this might seem to imply a fear on Paul's part that, even after his faithful work, he might be lost. However, taking the exact force of the words, and looking up their biblical usage, we find that the verse is much more practical than this. Paul is simply making it clear why he keeps his body in subjection, and also makes this statement as a warning to others who may think they can have faith without obedience. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And he says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me into his heavenly kingdom, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And our Lord Jesus Christ distinctly said in John 10.28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And First John 2.19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Thus distinctly teaching that when one is really born again, he will not fall away. Interpret any passage as those who were addressed. The eleventh principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret any passage in the Bible as those who were addressed would have understood it. Words that were addressed to any people were intended to be understood by them. There may be exceptions to this principle, but they are rare. An illustration of an exception is found in John 2.19, where Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body but the Jews would not have understood that. In this case, our Lord Jesus was not speaking for the present moment, but for the days that were to come. John explains this when he says, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture, and the word which Jesus had said. John 2.22 In interpreting the Bible, we need to have a knowledge of the times and places and customs where the words were spoken. For example, our Lord said to Peter in Matthew 16:19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this was perfectly understood by those to whom he said it, because they knew the customs of the day. When one graduated from one of the rabbinical classes, he was given by the rabbi a key to indicate that he was now ready to open the secrets of the kingdom. So the Lord promised to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to indicate that Peter would be able to open the truth of the kingdom of heaven to men. We see Peter using the keys with the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and with the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. There was another well-known usage of the day that explains the remainder of the verse. The words bind and loose were used constantly by the rabbis as referring to forbidding and permitting. For example, Shammai, a very strict rabbi, was said to bind or forbid, what Hillel, a more generous and liberal rabbi, was said to loose or permit. Interpret according to the proper audience. The twelfth principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret what belongs to the Christian as belonging to the Christian, what belongs to the Jew as belonging to the Jew, and what belongs to the Gentiles as belonging to the Gentiles. One of the most common causes of misinterpretation of the Bible 
is taking what is said or what applies to one group of people and applying it to another group. Take, for example, Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Now this is distinctly said, as the context clearly shows, to the believer, the one who is foreordained, called, and justified. Many take it as teaching that nothing can separate anybody from the love of Christ. It teaches nothing of the kind. Interpret each writer with a view to the opinions the writer opposed. The thirteenth principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret each writer with a view to the opinions the writer opposed. That is to say, when interpreting Paul as he is opposing the Judaizing tendencies in certain circles of his day, we should bear that in mind as we interpret his epistles, such as the Epistle to the Romans and the Epistle to the Galatians. When we are interpreting James, we should bear in mind that he was opposing the antinomians of his day, who taught that if a man believed correctly about Christ, he was under no moral obligations, he could live as he pleased, and still be a saved man. In interpreting John in his first epistle, we should bear in mind that he was opposing the Gnostics of his day, who were degrading Christianity by combining it with a fantastic philosophy similar to the philosophy of Christian science and in some forms of Gnosticism combining it with the philosophy of Theosophy. Interpret poetry as poetry, and prose as prose. The fourteenth principle of correct biblical interpretation is to interpret poetry as poetry, and prose as prose. For example, in interpreting Psalm 18, we should bear in mind that it is highly poetic, a remarkably vivid poetic description of a thunderstorm in which God put forth his power in defense of his servant. The highly poetic character of the psalm should be kept in mind in interpreting the psalm. For example, the eighth verse says, There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Now this is not to be taken literally, as representing God as a being out of whose nose poured literal smoke, and out of whose mouth poured literal fire. It is a wonderfully vivid and highly poetic description of a thunderstorm. Some people have no poetic sense and do everything in a matter-of-fact way. The story is told of a man of this hopelessly prosaic type of mind who read the well-known verse, There are books and brooks, sermons and stones, and good in everything. And he at once made this criticism. That is not what the writer meant to say. What he meant to say was that there are sermons and books, stones and brooks, and good in everything. Poetry should be interpreted as poetry. That is not to say it does not mean what it says, but it says it in a figurative way, and sometimes in a vividly pictorial way that represents an idea by a picture. But while we interpret poetry as poetry, we should interpret prose as prose. It is just as grave a breach of every sensible law of interpretation to interpret prose as poetry as it is to interpret poetry as prose. This is one of the outstanding faults of many of the modern interpreters of the Bible. They find a statement in the Bible that is evidently prose, but it contains a truth they do not wish to accept, so they at once say, this is figurative. They criticize those stupid people who interpret poetry as prose, but do not realize they are open to just as grave a criticism for interpreting prose as poetry. The Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. 
The fifteenth principle of correct biblical interpretation is that the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. The best interpreter of any book is the author of the book, and the Holy Spirit is beyond any honest question the author of the Bible. Scripture For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved. More literally, being borne along, or carried along, by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter one twenty one. Since this is true, of course it admits that the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. The man who in his study of the Word seeks and obtains the illumination of the Holy Spirit is a far more dependable interpreter of the Word than the greatest scholar on earth who is not illuminated by the Holy Spirit. As we pointed out before, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Therefore, no matter how well-founded one's claims to scholarship may be, if he is not a spirit-taught man, his interpretations of the word of God are absolutely valueless. The humblest and most uneducated Christian here who is taught by the Spirit of God would be a far more competent and reliable interpreter of the Scripture than the greatest university professor or theological professor on earth who was not in right relationship with God, and therefore was not taught by the Spirit of God. Our Lord Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. John sixteen thirteen. Now while this promise was made primarily to the apostles, and is a guarantee of their inspiration, and their absolute dependability as teachers, it also belongs in a lesser way to the individual believer. John, the beloved disciple, applies it to the believer. He says in 1 John 2.27, But the anointing, the Holy Spirit, which ye have received of him, from Christ, abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, so in your study of the Bible, in your eager desire to discover its true meaning, in your determination to find out the exact mind of God as he has revealed it in his word. Above all else, seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The way to get his guidance is to ask for it. Our Lord Jesus said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke eleven thirteen. How often have you thought as you have heard some Bible teacher who has been especially helpful to you? Oh, if I could only go to that man every day and have him for my teacher, I would make some progress in the knowledge of the things of God. But every time you open your Bible by yourself, you can have a far more competent and skillful teacher than any human Bible teacher this world ever saw. You will have the author of the book to interpret it to you. And the greatest of all secrets of true interpretation of the Word of God is to have the Spirit of God for your interpreter of the Word. And if you are in right relationship with God, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the sole ground of your acceptance before God, looking to the risen Christ to give you daily victory over sin, and if you are absolutely surrendered in your will and your affections and your thoughts to the will and mind of God, and then ask the Holy Spirit each time you open the Word to come and interpret it to you, then you may have the Holy Spirit as your interpreter every time you open the book.